Welcome to Main Street Politics. My name is Daniel Bonham. Beautiful day here in Salem, and we've got a beautiful guest here today. Secretary Clarno has decided to join us. We're so grateful that you would take the time to visit with us. I'm happy to be here, and it's a lovely day just like Central Oregon, isn't it? It, it is. It does remind me of home. Yep. And then I have to go to the house floor, and then I remember that I'm... You get doom and gloom, I know. <laughs> I know. I've been there, done that. <laughs> so uh, when we first met, just been appointed, I came down to Central Oregon, to Redmond, to visit with Central Oregon Electric Co-op. Yes. And you were there. Yes. And it was so fun to see you. And I remember when I saw you, I called you Speaker Clarno. Right. Just naturally came out of my mouth. I didn't think twice about it. You gave me a book that day. Yes, I remember that. Pigs to Politics. Correct. And uh, having checked out that book, and I really appreciate you sharing that with me, and I enjoyed the personal inscription very much. So uh, it is on my bookshelf back home, a treasured piece of my library. But uh, it is perfect segue into what we talk about a lot on this show, which is how did you get here? What, What brought you to Salem to begin with? What inspired you? To get into politics. Well, as somebody said one time, you weren't even recruited. No, I wasn't. I decided on my own. When I lived in Wasco, Oregon, in Sherman County, I went into the pig business with my brother-in-law. We had 250 sows, which equates to about 3,000 hogs. And I was continually visited by government regulatory people. And I had sows that needed shots all day long, so these little trays would be out inside the building with all my medicines, and they'd say, those have to be refrigerated. And then we might have something on the floor they didn't like. So I'd get all these warnings and sometimes fines. And I thought, my gosh, here I am trying to raise pigs, and all these government people are giving me holy heck and giving me fines and whatnot. And I said, if I ever can, I'm going to try to change that. So when I moved away from Sherman County and moved to the city for the first time in my life, I found things there that weren't a lot of fun, too. And uh, then I moved to Central Oregon, where I graduated from high school. And somebody said I was working in the court system for the judges, And somebody said, there's an open seat. And so I filed for it. I didn't know even where you file. I didn't know anything. But I filed, and I worked hard, and I got elected. The really hard thing I remember was a kid from high school that I graduated said, well, Bev, you're a nice gal, but you know, we just don't elect women over here. Mm. So I said to myself, I'm going to have to work hard. And I did. My son was going to Oregon State, Randy Hildebrand from Sherman County. He came down, and we went up and down the streets, and he'd go door-to-door with me. Ended up being my chief of staff, but I'll tell you, we went to over 10,000 doors in the primary, and we made it, and then we made it in the general, too. So campaigning, I always say, is kind of the pits, but serving in the legislature is a pleasure to serve people. So I I enjoyed it and kept at it for a while. So that makes me curious. So you got Randy, who, again, didn't have political experience either at the time, and you guys just decided, hey, we're going to go. And what direction, if any, did you get? Who was helping you? Who gave no, you? Nobody for a long time. And then Larry Campbell was the majority leader or minority leader at the time, He'd heard about me working so hard over there, so he came over and said, I want you to put together a budget and tell me what you need. 
and I put together a pretty hefty budget, yeah. and he sent me the money to do it, and it helps to have the money. Right at that time, I'd gotten my husband to take a $10,000 mortgage out on our cattle ranch to buy brochures mm-hmm. because, you know, how do you get started? You've got to have, you got to buy radio ads and TV stuff and newspapers and so you need money. So my husband said, I'll help you. Isn't it amazing how much things have changed and yet how much they've stayed the same? Yes. Still a matter of money to get elected. Yeah. And politics is local. You got to yes. go meet your constituents. You got to connect with them. That's uh, right. Uh, I think one day I remember I had eight meetings. I started out in Prineville with a brown brand inspection meeting, and I think I ended up at, at uh, a cow sale in the afternoon. Just eight meetings with different people in my district because at that time my district was not only included the Warm Springs Reservation, it went clear to Maupin, Okay. and then down to outside of Klamath Falls. So, Which is super fun because now half of that area is mine. Yes. You know, District 59, I'm so possessive of my district. Listen to me, it's mine now. Yeah, I uh, hope you're taking good care of my people yeah. over there. <laughs> well, yeah, I think, you know, between Mike McLean's district, Jack Zika's district, and my district, it used to be yours. True. Yeah, quite the geographical area. Yeah, we had to trade a car in after I got through campaigning. <laughs> it's way over the limit. <laughs> no, it's fantastic. Um, so the tribes has been a fascinating relationship for me, uh, getting to know the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs and having been to a tribal council meeting, golfing with uh, Delvis Heath, one of the oh, good uh, for you. Warm Springs chiefs. He beat me, uh, yes. uh, and I'm not embarrassed to say it. Wow, he was just a target golfer. He was fun to play with, and, and we got to actually talk and visit about what his life was like growing up and, and what the path to chief is. And, you know, it is hereditary in certain circumstances, but they can also pass within... Uh, the tribe to other families. And so, uh, again, just trying to make En-ROADS into a sovereign nation. They self-govern, and yet they are U.S. citizens, and they are citizens of the state of Oregon. And so they've got this interesting mix of governments governments that that they have to uh, maneuver through. And again, to the extent that they want to be represented, I want to represent them. But to the extent they want to be a sovereign nation, I want to respect that. Tell me a little bit about your experience with the tribes and, and if you've gone through that same interaction. Well, I th- of course, I admire them as not only the first people that were here, mm-hmm. but I admire them of doing a much better job in some things than, than we do. They admire their elders and respect their elders a lot better than we do. And now that I'm an elder in my race, I'm very aware of that. And right. I really respect the way they treat their elders. Um, I've ridden my horse in Payumsha Treaty Days. Um, they have wonderful, wonderful treaty days and celebrations. And from the very first time that I ever went to one of their celebrations to any of the last ones, it's been an amazing part of the Indian tradition, and I'm just very respectful of the traditions that they have in their culture. Right. And, and you know, to your point, I, they really do family well. Yes, they do. Yeah. There's a lot of influences that the white people have given them that don't help their children and their communities, but they do the best they can to address those issues, and it's tough. And you want to know also that when I was in Seattle, um, the, when George Bush appointed me to Health and Human Services in Seattle, all of the Indian communities in my four s- states 
were part of my responsibility, and it was nice to be able to meet with the uh, Indians at Warm Springs and come down and see their wellness center and present them a grant. Diabetes is a big concern, and we visited with them about that, and of course, then all the Indians and Native American, Native Eskimos that are in Alaska was a huge experience for me as well. But yeah. I think that knowing the Warm Springs Indians made me very comfortable with the various tribes in Alaska. So how did that President George W. Bush appointment come about? Well, I was in the Senate. We had long surpassed the first session I'd been here where we went to August 23rd or something. I was told by my congressman, Greg Walden, that they were looking for somebody with experience in health and human services. Yeah. And I thought that that would be a great opportunity for me, and I filled out the 150-some pages of <laughs> application, and within uh, a period of time, I found out that I would be appointed and moved to Seattle. And having uh, grown up in Wasco, and lived in Terrebonne when I graduated from high school. It was kind of a cultural shock to be in downtown Seattle. Yeah, It's not just the traffic. It's just all the other things that come with the big city environment. So it was different. Yeah. But my states were Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and Alaska. So Idaho probably shines at that time as the state that best does the federal programs. Yeah, And I knew at that time that we had a lot of problems in Oregon with our uh, Department of Human Services and getting penalties and fines from the federal government by not properly addressing and allocating money to recipients. So I was very well at, I, aware that I might not have the best time in trying to navigate everything that was wrong in Oregon. Interesting. So going full circle now back, because you talked about culture shock, going to Seattle. So starting back you know, you're, you're working on the farm, and, and here come these bureaucrats and regulators coming out to make sure that you're doing it right. You decide to run for office. You get elected. You come to Salem. Did you come to Salem and experience culture shock at all? Oh, goodness, yes. I didn't even know my way around the building. I came here in the eighth grade, and the only thing I could remember is the, the state seal on the doorknobs, and I thought that was so cool. And at that time, I thought, gosh, anybody who works here has to be really smart. And, of course, most all of them were men. So when I got here, um, it wasn't long before I realized that being really smart was not necessarily a requirement. <laughs> <laughs> That's not very nice to say. But uh, it took me a while to learn my way around the building. And I just always knew, no matter whether I was raising pigs or whatever I was doing, you can't get anything done by yourself. And so I made friends with people in the city. Mm -hmm. other legislators in the city, well, those people are not Republicans. They're Democrats. And I made very good friends with the ones that I could make friends with. And when I needed a vote, I went to them and said what I needed. And when you're in the minority, you may not get what you want. But when you're in the majority, lots of times your own colleagues and your own party do not vote with you. So you have to have some people in the other party support your concerns. And if I'm going to understand what it's like to live in northeast Portland, I need to have them understand what it's like to live in central and eastern Oregon. Did you spend any time? Did you invite people out to eastern Oregon? Did you get folks to come visit? Did you go to Portland, spend some time I there? I went to Portland. I felt like that um, trying to get them <laughs> across the mountains. Um, one time I heard one of them were going, was going to go over and give a speech to a statewide conference 
And they called me up and they said, do you think you could give this speech? I just looked on the map to see how far it is over there, and I just can't make that trip. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I make it every weekend. What, what's your problem? But I did go to Portland. I found out about skill centers in northeast Portland and the various issues with law enforcement and crime and problems with kids that don't get an opportunity to ever get out of the city. So Yeah. And I guess I'm just going to be civil. No, and I definitely agree with that. I, I'm so thankful that you have been willing to serve. I mean, you're the perfect candidate, and uh, I'm just tremendously grateful that after all the years of service, you'd be willing to come back and, and engage one more time. <laughs> yeah, I think um, it's been a little bit hard on my husband and my grandson who lives with us. Uh, my husband's not a cook, so... They're eating out a lot. <laughs> he's the one that encouraged me, if you want to do it. He said, you certainly have the skills. I yeah. mean, I'd worked for the corporation divisions. We run for office. We certainly understand the election division. I've always been involved in the Oregon Historical Society. I'm a member of the Sherman County Historical Society. I um, think our archives division is extremely important to save everything that's important to our history in Oregon. And the Audits Division. I was chair of the Audits Division for a long time in my service in the legislature. And we need to make sure that government is working as effectively and efficiently as possible. Government has yeah. no money of its own. It's spending yours and mine. Yeah. So I want to be sure we say that we are careful about how we spend our money. And I think that's a challenge, you know, for us uh, Republicans in this day and age and as we try to represent the state as a whole and not just our constituents but but our state and do the best for the state. I think there is a challenge between what should government provide, what are the roles and services that it needs to provide, and then what's the most efficient and cost-effective way to do it. And that's where, you know, I think we can find a lot of common ground as a Republican Party with the people of Oregon. I think that's most people want to see that type of government I uh, agree. provided. So I absolutely agree. And people don't mind helping people that can't help themselves. We all feel the same way. To spend government money without being careful about how we spend it is not a good program. Right. I mean, I do. I'm fascinated by the fact that you retired. And which, which time I retired? I know. I retired from the Senate. And then I went to the Seattle job, and yeah. then I retired from that, and I came home. And Dennis Luke, a former uh, legislator who was then a county commissioner, said, Bev, we have a county commissioner that's had to resign from inappropriate behavior. We want you to run for county commissioner. And I'm thinking, oh, that's only for one year. See, I kind of fall for these things <laughs> that aren't, aren't too long a time. So I put my name in, and I was selected to serve as county commissioner. And um, I did that, and now here I am back here. So it's uh, been full circle. I've never served in city government, and I don't think I will bother. I'm not going to. <laughs> so my favorite question to ask people before I allow them to leave is, what is something people back home listening to this podcast would be surprised to know about you? What they would be surprised to know about me? Oh, gosh. I think the thing that they'd be, uh, well, they probably wouldn't be surprised, but no, I have all these grandchildren and all these great-grandchildren, and that's what I live my life for, and that's why I want my state to be the best state I can have for my children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. 
I have like 14 greats already, so that's a I beautiful answer. I want them to answer. have a good state to live in. Yeah, no, that's a perfect answer. I, you know, I honestly, I would have thought it would have been something tied to the farm, but uh, no, your family answer is perfect. So, thank you, thank you for having me. No, thank you for your service. I, I'm, I'm truly grateful you're here. So one of the things that I've noticed, even just since having been appointed in November of 17, served in the short session. Uh, for me, part of the issue is, of course, the change in the mix. We had 25 of 60 uh, Republicans in the House then. We're at 22 now. We're faced with this supermajority. But it's not just the House. It's also the Senate and then a relatively progressive liberal governor. How are things different today than when you served as Speaker and, and when you served your time in the Senate? Well, I think I would have to say that they're drastically different. Not, And you say when I ter- served my time in the Senate, uh, I want to go back to the House uh, I've served in the minority, I've served in the majority, and I've served when we're t- tied. And I honestly like the tied best, being mm-hmm. tied. But when I was in the minority, we couldn't wait until the Republicans took control. And when they did, I was the second speaker after we took control, and I made sure that every committee had a, a Democrat vice chair and that we were as paid as much attention to their needs and concerns as we wanted to have paid to us when mm-hmm. we were in the minority. And I think that worked very well, and we worked across party lines to get things done. The problem is is that when you come hot off the campaign trail, lots of times you've been beat up pretty badly, so you hold those animosities against the party that was beating you up. Mm-hmm. That works both ways. And so we tried to get through that by having both parties do mutual things and fundraise or not fundraising event, but uh, events in the legislature and bowling parties and things like that. So we actually got together off the House floor and had a good time. And it's hard to maintain a relation of anger at somebody because their party beat you up if you are having fun together, and especially if you can beat them bowling. Well, time out. Yeah, did I hear bowling? Yes. So we're going tonight. Oh, you are? I just want you to know you're invited. Oh, thanks. 7 o'clock over the Firebird Lanes. It's $2 Tuesdays. We go, and we have a good time. And we try and get a bipartisan mix of folks. Good. And uh, we invite staff as well, You know, because one of the other dynamics I've found challenging is the power dynamic and that staff sometimes feels alienated from yes. members, and we want to bridge that gap, too. I mean, uh, We used to do things like that with baseball and other things, too. So any activities that gives you a chance to meet with people outside of this building kind of gives you a fresh look at people. And in the Senate, um, when we were tied 15-15, um, Kate Brown was the leader of the Democrats, and I was the leader of the Republicans, And it was kind of an interesting dynamic because the Republicans had been in control and they didn't want to let go. And the Democrats had never been in control and they couldn't wait to have the power. But nobody had the power. Mm -hmm. So we sat and all the month of December developed a memorandum of understanding and we elected Peter Courtney as the Senate president and then uh, Kurt Schrader uh, and Randy Miller and Steve Harper as the co-chairs of Ways and Means. So we alternated the power within the memorandum, and then we all signed that and operated the Senate. And I liked the way we worked together to figure out how we were going to run the Senate. And so that's why I like the 1515 um, better. And But I, I 
hope that just maybe with the year and a half I've got here, if I can influence anybody to say it's better to work together than to be opposite all the time, yeah. that's stressful. And the people of the state want us to get along. The people of the state want us to do public policy, not inner fighting. Yeah. And, I mean, we see that at the national level. People are very unhappy about every night you turn on the media, it's somebody bashing the president. I mean, that's not what we – what are you going to do for me? Not what you're doing for or against my president, but what are you going to do for me? And that's what our citizens are concerned about. Yeah. It's what's going to happen for our state. And my other big concern, to your point, is that people will start to say, I'm disinterested. Yes. I don't want any part of that. And our whole goal, especially with this podcast, we're, you know, we're trying to reach out to people saying, you need to be more engaged. We need your voice. We need to hear from you. Because I do believe what you just said is right. I think people want to see us work together. And if we could have all of our constituents sitting here watching us on a daily basis, uh, I, you know, I think that's the mentality that would so help us to be held accountable by those people back home. Yes, and unfortunately what happens is that if the majority doesn't care, then the minority rules. And I'm not talking about parties, but the minority of voices, mm -hmm. whatever is the issue. Right. Well, when you look at your time in office, is there a, is there a piece of legislation or a, a bill or a project that you were a part of that you look back on uh, with great pride that you say, gosh, that was really something that I'm so proud of that I, I achieved this and we did this for the people of Oregon? Yeah, I guess there's lots of things. I... One thing, I don't know if it's a practice or not, but I made sure that everybody copied things on both sides of the paper instead of just one side. That was done for a long time. I don't know if it still is. And that the, all the multitude of reports, we reduced those. And reports that go to everybody that just goes on a shelf. I mean, right. gosh, that was such a waste of money, millions of dollars. And then memberships, dues, and subscriptions that all the agencies belong to. The thing I tried the hardest for was to get rid of the state printer. I still believe that's the thing that should be done. I don't believe that our government should be spending money doing anything that can be done in the private sector, and there are printing companies in the private sector. And I also uh, tried to get rid of the state motor pool, which I still believe was a good idea. Obviously, we can't get rid of our Department of Transportation trucks and bulldozers, etc., but and cars, we could. Uh, we had a lot of pushback from the unions on that, and we're not able to convince the rest of the legislators to go along with us. Uh, we've not only got a motor pool now with thousands of cars, but we've built a fueling station because mm. we don't want the state employees to have to go anywhere to fuel their own car. We've got a car washing station. I mean, it just goes on and on, and all those things should be done in the private sector. Um, lots of other things. I'm, I think just sometimes little things. When I was first elected in 1988, I had a couple months, as you know, from November to well, January. I went. I asked if I could go to the welfare training school with the caseworkers. Yeah. And that's where my interest got so I got so enthused about what we can do differently in our welfare case system and to see our audits division now issuing audits about foster care kids and all the problems that we're still having in that agency. Um, I remember going to the training and the manuals that the caseworker had were 
eight inches thick. Yeah. And every day there's new federal or state regulations for those manuals in which they have to learn and implement. So it's, I don't know how caseworkers sleep at night. It's got to be a horrible job. Well, and just to your point on taking a deep dive on something that you cared about, I think that's the biggest challenge with this job is we bring our experience and expertise from back home when we come here. Right. And then we engage in this process that is so wide and so deep that you really have to pick and choose your spots of where you're going to invest your time and energy to try and become an expert or to try and offer uh, more insight than you can outside of just what you bring from your personal life. Right. And I mean, there wasn't too much need to know how to do the hog business down here. <laughs> As a matter of fact, when I first moved to Lake Oswego, I didn't have a job and I looked in the paper and there's no hog managers wanted in Lake Oswego. So you have to learn to do something different, but you have a great point in then coming here and you can't be an expert in everything that you hear about. I remember hearing about brain injury groups, mm-hmm. um, sort of many disabled groups that I'd never heard about. And of course, when I first came here, it was the beginning of the uh, downfall of the timber industry, which my family had been involved in, in uh, the Oregon coast. And it was a shock to me to see people come in dressed as an owl in big feathers and whatnot to testify to protect the owl. Now, years later, we found out that, you know, the owl is really harassed and killed by some other bird. Um, and then, of course, we've got the ospreys living on the Fremont Bridge, which amazes me. I don't know why they don't close that bridge down. Right. I mean, they would if that was in the timber. You know, just shut it down. Yeah. Why not? That's, anyway, that's a scary I'm thought. I'm a little uh, cynical about the timber industry. I, I am, too. Terrible. I've got all sorts of stats in my head that I really want to convey right now I mean, to the I listeners. Think <laughs> if all the people that are concerned about school funding would realize that the money we have, like in the Elliott State Forest and the money we've been given to manage state property or state forests of any kind, is to go to the school fund. And yet we can't harvest any timber to generate money for the school fund. Let's not be... We we close our eyes to the obvious of what we could do to help our school districts more, and that's... I just don't understand it. So yesterday was my birthday. Oh, well, happy birthday. And uh, a year ago, though, we had... uh, Secretary Purdue out, uh, Sonny Purdue came out, uh, and Congressman Walden and the Governor Brown came out to to look at the Eagle Creek fire, and uh, someone made a mistake and thought it was my birthday on July 3rd, and so we had this wonderful meeting, (laughs) and I was a new legislator, and we were sitting down, and you know, very new to this process, and here I've got a cabinet secretary sitting engaged in conversation, and uh, he spoke, and Congressman Walden spoke, and Governor Brown spoke, and then members of the U.S. Forest Service spoke, and then they went around the table, and they said, anybody want to ask questions? And so, or, or make a comment to the secretary, you know, you got a kind of once-in-a-lifetime opportunity here, perhaps, and and I remembered from my days at Evergreen when we used to pay lots of money uh, to sit with a high-ranking official, you know, we'd pay $10,000 to have lunch with someone to make a 30-second pitch on what we needed. So anyway, so I took this opportunity very seriously, and I had prepared some thoughts about forest management and wildfire management. So I spoke, and and uh, and I spoke about the owl, and I spoke about what the timber industry used to be and what it meant to our economy and, and how many mills now that don't exist. Right. There used to be 23 along Highway 97. Now there's one yes. down in Gilchrist. And so it was fun to engage 
with the secretary, and he actually responded to me. I was the first one he responded to. So for me, it was, wow. I really felt special that day oh, uh, having him respond to me. And then to wrap it off, when they sang happy birthday to me, albeit on the wrong day, yes. it was the highlight. You didn't admit no, it was the wrong day. I, not till after. Yeah. I finally told the congressman, I was like, you know, it wasn't my birthday. And then we've had a good laugh about that, and we've made it quite the joke going back and forth <laughs> to where yesterday I had four or five members of his staff sending me. Now, is this your birthday or is it not? (laughs) We had some fun. So you were a trailblazer, though. I mean, you've mentioned a couple times that you were one of the first women to come here. It it was a a men's club back then. So who were your heroes? Who who did you look up to uh, that uh, would have been a mentor to you? Uh, I would have to say Tom McCall and Mark Hatfield. I Mm. wish I could say somebody that was a female. Mm -hmm. There was a female in my life that influenced me a lot. Uh, She was an aunt that lived to be 104 years old, and she didn't influence me in politics, but just influenced me because she was a strong woman. She told me about her dad's, um, had a cattle ranch over in Goldendale, Washington, and she was riding side saddle. Mm Mm-hmm. And they would jump over logs through the timber chasing cattle. And she said to her mom, you've got to make me a split skirt so I can ride astride the saddle because I'm going to fall off and break my neck. And her mother made her a split skirt and she rode the horse the way we do today. And she was ostracized by all her friends and family as being a wild and terrible lady because she was riding astride a horse. And just think about the change in the culture from those days to today. And to me, she was a strong woman because she knew she needed to ride astride a horse, and she made it happen. And she's probably my female heroine of the day. Well, the nice thing is, though, now come full circle to today, and you're saying that you didn't have any females to look up to, and you wish you had. But today, I can tell you that, albeit that there are men here, that there are quite a few females that I get to look up to. And yes. you are one of them. And well, so you have you. been so kind to Jack and I, uh, Jack Zika, representative down in Redmond. And uh, you have helped us and you've mentored us and taught us how to campaign and taught us what it means to be to be a legislator. So thank you. No, it's been my great honor. Thank you. So before I let you go, you've mentioned grands and some great grands. Correct. So where, are they still in Oregon? Are they close by? Yes, I have a, well, most of them are close by. I have one grandson that's in California. He's a Border Patrol agent. And the rest of my grandkids, the other five are in Oregon. And then I have 15 great-grandchildren. I mentioned one of them lives with us and has since he was seven. He's now 12, and he got three red ribbons in the track meet yesterday. No kidding. And um, of those 15 grandkids, great-grandkids, they're all boys. One of them is girl. One no of, kidding. One of them. Mm-hmm. So you got a 12-year-old, though, running track. I mean, no wonder you're so young and youthful. Oh, yeah, and I train him, actually. <laughs> that totally makes sense to me. That, that <laughs> explains a lot. I mean, you run around this building with a lot of energy. Well... I've got to have my exercise, you know. It makes my brain work, so. You've heard the story about my acceptance speech, that everybody was um, kind of amazed that the governor appointed somebody 83 years old. And the fact is that age 
is just a number. It's experience that counts. So I am the most experienced Secretary of State Oregon has ever had. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for thank coming you. today. I really appreciate your time. And you, uh, I look forward to the next couple of years serving with you. It'll be fun. Thank you for the good job you're doing and for representing my former constituents. It's my great pleasure. <laughs> and thank you, the listeners, for coming back by again. Main Street Politics. Remember, if you need to get a hold of us here in the office, 503-986-1459. Or our district office is 541-719-8745.